Hello! Once again, this is Sari Martin Concepcion for Blueprint 1543. And now I've got the second half of our special bonus episodes hosted by our special guest host, Emma Baker, Blueprint 1543's inaugural intern. She's a senior at George Fox University in Oregon with years of ministry experience under her belt already. And one particular pain point that Emma shared with us early on was her heart for trauma-informed ministry. She wants to be, she wants the church to be the absolute safest place for people who have survived horrors and who carry invisible scars into our worship spaces. Because of this passion, I wanted her to become aware of Preston Hill's work. He's a theologian and a therapist based in Tennessee at Richmond University. He was recently awarded a John Templeton Foundation research grant where he'll be seeking to help folks that have left a religious identity to help them rediscover a healthy sense of spirituality once again. A trauma survivor himself, Preston, co-authored a book about creating trauma-safe churches, which I discussed with him in detail on a previous episode. In fact, my previous interview with Preston is the most downloaded episode from our feed of all time. So if you haven't checked that one out, go ahead and check that one out. But Emma's conversation here goes a little bit deeper. It gets pretty personal and goes in some interesting directions. I think you'll really enjoy it. A trigger warning, if you are a trauma survivor, there is mention of abuse. So just be warned that is part of this conversation. But it is also the case that this conversation is for you. It's a very honest conversation about the real spiritual issues that trauma survivors come up against on their road to healing. So enjoy this important conversation. It's so good to finally meet you and talk to you. I've been reading your stuff for about a year and a half now, so it's really exciting to to meet you. I started with an article you wrote quite a bit ago on the atonement and attachment. I think mm. you wrote that a while ago, but this book kind of touched on a lot of those themes, and it was excited to see them fleshed out in a really practical and applicable way with with a lot more narrative. So I'm super excited to have you here today. Can you tell us, start off telling us about a current routine that you have or an embodied practice that brings you joy? Well, I am really happy to be talking to you, too. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's really great to meet you, Emma. It was sort of arresting when I read it and thought about it. A current routine or embodied practice that brings me joy. You know, I was thinking, prepping for this, that just before, like just before we came on, I have a little pour over set right here behind my desk. So I've got like this little side desk. This is my like office where I like my office at my university. So student office hours are here. You know, I do like research here, but I also see clients here in my private practice. So this is like a very Zen space for me. And for a while, this like burr grinder and pour over set that I've had for the last 10 years sat neglected for so long because I was so busy. I could never get coffee and enjoy it. And just recently, I've started like saying no to stuff in life and being more slow and intentional and less busy, less productive, just more leisure. And I find like myself more spiritually vibrant 
more connected to other people, but it's just like all this little stuff, this little embodied stuff. So, I mean, it, as silly as it sounds, I mean, that's how I know if something is a routine embodied practice that brings me joy. If I feel a little bit embarrassed sharing it, that's how I know. So like, I feel a little embarrassed sharing because I don't want to seem to like, I'm not trying to be like hip or anything, but maybe it's not even hip anymore. But when I was in college, like seven-ish years ago, it was hip to like brew coffee and third wave and all that. So I picked it up then, but I just started recently again. I got some coffee from a friend who just started a roasting company and I just love it. I love the heck out of it. Like just sitting down, brewing some coffee, doing it right. And I was thinking there are other practices that are like that for me that bring me so much joy that are like routine and embodied practices that are just for any other purpose are unimportant except for the effect they have on me. Another one is like, I feel silly saying this, but I recently started doing a new type of workout, pit, high intensity, like interval training workouts. And if you're not familiar with that, it's just like crazy, like cardio stuff where you're like doing jumping jacks and push-ups and all this. And it has just been killing me, but I've been loving it. And so I think there's something common to these different things, like whether it's doing that or running has been a long time and body practice for me. It saved my life from suicidality years ago. Just the endorphins of getting a run. I was like, wow, after a run, I feel like, I feel like I, a Christian. I feel like I like people. I feel like life is worth living. Like, I feel like I get born again every time I run because the endorphins make me feel like life is good. So I was just doing it for my mental health. But I think things that make me feel at home in my body, things that make me feel like less of a stranger where I'm at. I think there are just a couple of different things like that. Another one is yard work. It's so nerdy, but we bought a house last year and I've just been like loving yard work. So I don't know. Those are some little things that I've been enjoying recently. Yeah. I want to also start with asking you to define, because we're jumping into some terms and some language that are used commonly in the therapy world and they're used commonly in a lot of theology as well. What is embodied versus disembodied and how does that look? Is that automatic versus slow? Is that something that brings you home as you were kind of saying? What is it that you notice when you're embodied versus disembodied? A really catalyzing thing for me when I started this whole journey of theology and trauma was the work of Bessel van der Kolk and some of the recent neuroscience and neurobiology, like just over the last 10 or 20 years, people have just begun realizing like our bodies are a lot more intuitive and smart than we think they are or that we, than we thought they were in the past. So this has led to like a really big interest in the body, a renewal of body talk. Like it's everywhere now. It wasn't everywhere a while ago. And this, I've actually had some questions about this recently in my own work. Like, you know, you can find tons of titles now where the body is like in the title. So Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, Hilary McBride, The Wisdom of Your Body, other books like When the Body Says No. I mean, it's really remarkable. We've got all these, like if Descartes were alive now, he'd be reading these thinking, whoa, the body is capable of moral intentionality and is capable of surveying beauty. I mean, it's basically a, a mind. That's, those are, these are all the things we used to call mind. Now we're just calling them body. I'm sort of scratching my head recently about this. I'm like, why is this language about the body's mentality, the mindfulness of the body? Why is that so gripping to people? Why do these books sell? And 
I do think the reason is because it's telling us something that we know to be true, which is that I am more than the sum of the decisions I choose to make daily. I'm more than the sum of my self-determination. What makes me me is not just what I choose and what I think about, not even just what I feel. It's like that gut level stuff, the things I can't quite even articulate or put into words, but it's a part of me. So I really think like when the more I've thought about it, I think when people talk about being embodied or feeling embodied, I think technically what they really mean is being very mindful about their existence in that moment. There's a lot of correlation between like mindfulness literature and what the popular person means when they talk about feeling or being embodied. So I think being embodied, and that's certainly resonant with my experience, my most embodied feeling moments are moments when I am the most present, if you will, or I'm the most like consciously aware of this moment, these feelings in my body, the I'm not suspicious about, but I'm curious about the connections between my emotion and my physical sensations, which like we know is totally legit neurologically, like the way it works in your body and your brain is your emotions and your physical sensations are so closely uh, fired, you know, in your brain and in your body. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers what you're, what you're thinking, but I think like experientially for me, some of that is too nerdy, but experientially for me, like embodied, I feel like I'm not suspicious or cynical. I'm just open to the gift of this present moment. I'm just feeling here, feeling what's here, allowing myself to make connections of meaning between physical sensations and emotional sensations without questioning whether they're legit or not. Just going with what's here, just trusting that what's here whether you like it or not, it's here and it's telling you something. Yeah. I think that it seems that Western psychology is leading re the religious communities out of this intellectual Gnosticism and into this kind of more Eastern way of embodied practices. Would you say that that seems to be the case? Yeah, you said Western, did you say psychology or science? Yeah, Western psychology, yeah. Western science is kind of taking, yeah. taking the lead there. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I think there's totally a case to be made for that. A lot of the way that even, I'm thinking like current trends in philosophy of mind, these folks sound, I know you said psychology, but a lot of these folks are very highly interdisciplinary, but they're like end up sounding like Buddhists, the way they describe fundamental metaphysical principles. Or, I mean, even like just a lot of the mindfulness literature that is now really, really evidence-based. So we talk about therapy, like the golden standard is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of people call that second wave behavioral therapy because the first wave was just straight up behaviorism from Skinner. But then CBT, we realized, no, actually cognition is important. We're not just behaving things. We think but then there's this third wave of behavioral therapies, like dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. One of them is this mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it's totally legit. Like it's evidence-based from what, like you're saying, Western secular science perspectives. It's validated, let's say, at the highest levels of randomized controlled trials and all that. 
But a lot of the practitioners and a lot of the theorists of these modalities, they are drawing unapologetically from Buddhist traditions, for example. So I do think there's definitely a trend of Western science somehow has opened itself up for all of its narrowness of empirical method is open to some surprising turns of inquiry, which I think is really cool and tells us something really interesting. And I think is really cool for Christians to think about too. Where have we, if this, is this surprising to us? Are these things surprising to us? And if so, is that because it's foreign to us or is it because we've forgotten things about the Christian tradition? I think it's a really interesting conversation, but survivors of trauma just know this stuff in their gut. They just don't have the luxury of the functional Gnosticism, like you're saying, of a lot of Western culture. They have to be embodied. And so if they're going to have any recovery, they have to find they have to find some Zen ways of being that don't fit with a lot of what a good Westerner maybe would look like for some cultural circles. That was one of my favorite quotes from the book where you talked about Gnosticism being a luxury that trauma don't should have. There's this kind of, I can trust my mind and I can trust my cognition and my logic to get me to a place of faith. And there's that sense of distrust in the mind and in the gap between experience and belief that trauma survivors have where you can't just believe yourself into this higher state of being. You are stuck where you are and you have to make peace with that and allow God to come to you in that state of dissonance. And I'm wondering if that seems true to your experience and where did you find the Trinity encountered you in the midst of your processing? I love how these are the best conversations that are like autobiographical and um, thoughtful, you know, but so I love this question, this idea, and I appreciate the invitation to think about it. That one of the things I was first thinking, contemplating this question was that a lot of the moments that I would now identify as moments of Trinitarian encounter, like that I do now see, I look back and see, you know, I perceive that I was experiencing the triune God. I like treasure and adore and appreciate. At the time, I would not, I don't think I would have said that at the time. I don't think I would have said, what a amazing Trinitarian moment right now. So I'm thinking an example is one time when this was with my therapist in Chicago in, um, I don't know how many years ago, but lots of memories from my childhood were coming and were just like arresting me, paralyzing me. I wasn't able to function. I was like having trouble breathing. We had to do like integrated care with a psychiatrist who had me on like some medication and prescribed me to do like IFS and EMDR and all this therapy stuff that really helped. But at the time it was just so overwhelming and we were, we got some stabilization and then we got to the part of like mourning and remembrance and a lot of the really hard trauma work. And I remember one session where I just, just unleashed a lot of anger in the session, I remember like literally screaming at the top of my lungs. I remember I had a scrunched up like tissue drawing my wet face. I was so angry. I threw it as hard as I could. I wasn't trying to hit my therapist. I was just wanting to throw it. And then like, you know how you throw something that's very light 
and then you feel very impotent after doing it. There was that kind of moment, but I could tell he was very shaken by this whole thing. And it, what was so great was he was the first person in my life who I not only felt safe enough to express that anger in front of, but he didn't try to censure me. He had every reason to. I'm sure I was, and I know because later I ended up becoming friends with one of his colleagues and asked if she ever remembered. She was like, oh yeah, I remember when you screamed. Like she could hear it through the wall. Um, so I know he had every reason to censure me, to stop, to, mm -hmm. but he had enough faith in me and my processing my story as a real human to just let me sort of go with my experience and go with what was happening. He was the first person in my life to give me the space to be angry and to not be threatened, at least not to express that he was threatened by my anger. And I now look back on that as like an incredible gift of, and that might be seem really counterintuitive to a lot of people, and I'm okay with that. But I look back at that now as a gift of encountering the Trinity, like the bigness of the safe attachment mm -hmm. of the Trinity. Because that's the thing about attachment a lot of people don't realize is attachment doesn't mean you never have ruptures. Um, good attachment, secure attachment means you can have the rupture in the relationship and the relationship can hold it and you can repair it afterward. That's a huge difference. It doesn't mean it's smooth sailing. It means the relationship can handle the ups and downs. And so I remember a time later that sort of catalyzed and allowed me later in my prayer life to say things to, I'll say it this way, say things to God that I like, can't probably won't say here and things that probably would seem offensive to a lot of Christians. But to me, I look back at them as the most meaningful pieces of dialogue I've ever had with God. And there were times that were not very pious by a lot of standards, times that I said things I'd be embarrassed to share. Um, so that's all to say, those are the, maybe the darker Psalm 88 moments, but then that's not everything. There's also the moments where, like, currently in my life, like enjoying silent prayer in the morning and just saying the Jesus prayer and having imaginative open dialogues with Jesus. And for me, that's not imaginary. That is like very salient and real. And, and I think also another piece here is I used to get tripped up about talking to the members of the Trinity because I'm practical and spiritual and therapeutic and all that, but I'm also a theologian by training. And so I would worry, am I being heretical by talking to the Father and not also talking to the Son and the Spirit? Am I being a tritheist accidentally in my prayer life? And then thinking, okay, I think God's more concerned. If God's real and he's here, then God's more concerned with me just getting on with talking and communicate, dialoguing. So just feeling permission to stop checking the validity of your experience and just be surrendered to it. And just talking, just letting myself right now, I'm just going to talk to the Holy Spirit. I'm just enjoying that. And right now, I'm just going to talk to Jesus or just the Father recently in my life. One really practical thing was allowing myself to talk directly to different members of the Trinity, other actual people. That was really powerful for me. I'm going to jump to a question about relational language and anthropomorphic issues of pain, because um, we're kind of on that topic right now, thinking about specifically trauma survivors and this issue of attachment that arises. You talk a little bit about 
attachment forming in childhood, and especially when there's trauma there, that attachment is broken and it's fractured in some ways that make it really hard to attach yourself to what could be a safe and loving God. But it's really difficult to do that because attachment styles can be really fractured. And also with our attachment styles and and our imagination of God, that can be limited by broken human relationships and by issues of projecting our broken relationships onto God. How do you help people navigate that practically and theologically without committing major heresies such as leaving one of the members of the Trinity just permanently out or just trying to relate relate differently to a God that might be just formed incorrectly yet again by that attachment? So I, I totally resonate with the challenge you're describing because like for example statistically the truth is that the majority of at least the last time i got the statistics i think this one is a stable statistic but the majority of perpetrators of abuse and sexual violence are male and the mistake sometimes people make is they think that the majority of survivors or victims are female but actually it's one in four women one in six men is a conservative statistic of experiencing sexual violence before age 18. So there you've got a lot, actually, a lot of both women and men of the general population, all of whom have experienced abuse at the hands of men. And the thing about abuse is, whether it's sexual or of any kind, emotional, any kind of abuse or violence and trauma in particular, involves a power differential, power dynamic that is actually at the heart of the, especially for relational traumas. Typically, it's not actually about sexual gratification. It's about power. It's about the expression of dominance. And I'm saying all that to say like that fact, like that's a fact we have about our world, that a lot of people experience abusive, powerful male figures. Then we have a religious tradition that has the language of powerful male at the heart of it, a father-son relationship. Now, it's not, a, it's not an abusive, powerful male. It's a good, good, powerful relationship there. It's so like relationally, descriptively similar to what people have experienced that just the language or the pictures or the songs, the subtle cultural cues that point to that tradition are literally like physiologically triggering for people. So for some people, it's just even calling God Father um, is just painful. Or it's not, it's hard to describe this for people who don't know trauma experientially, that it's not like people just don't prefer it. It's that their bodies start freaking out on them and they're bothered by it too. They're bothered that they're bothered by it. Like, especially trauma survivors who are very sincere and ardent and like they wish they could call God Father, but their bodies are fighting against them. They feel like they're broken and like they're strangers to themselves because this narrative, this religious narrative doesn't fit with their experience, like you said earlier. So there's all kinds of different responses to that. Like some communities double down and say, you know, you're sinning. And then that creates this whole like problematic thing that just hurts and doesn't help anyone where people feel like they're sinning for something that they have no control over, the trauma response. 
But then there's other communities that like almost go on the offensive and do a reactionary thing where they like want to make everything heterodox as a sign to themselves that they are trauma safe. I think that's a little regressive too. That's a little, that's, that's small. That's not exactly what we want to do. Like, is there a way that we can like offer genuine space and care for people that doesn't fit into these like polar opposites and binaries? And I think it's a really hard question, but like getting to the point, like a really concrete one, like what do you do with someone who they're, let's say that they were, they've had an abusive father and they just can't call God father. What do you do with that? And, you know, for me, I've just come to a point in my life where I'm just reminded of this letter from Augustine and I'll have to look it up and share. I can't remember which one it is, but I've got it saved in a file somewhere. But he says something like, you know, true orthodoxy always risks heresy. Mm. He said that. And I think it's awesome that he said that. That's true. That resonates with me that really good orthodoxy is never safe. It's always kind of risky. We're trying to risk how people can really actually relate with God in a spiritually salient way. And then I also think about like the Sermon on the Mount, and I've used this a ton with my students, and they love it. It's been super liberating for me. But thinking about like, how did Jesus think about things? In the Sermon on the Mount, he clearly says, if you earthly parents do one thing, how much more? Your heavenly father, speaking of the father. I think in logic, that's called an a fortiori argument. It's to the greater. Like if one thing is true of a little thing, and you've got another thing that's even bigger, it's got to be more true for the big thing. So Jesus is inviting us to trust our moral intuitions of our basic experience of the world. Yeah which is the opposite of a lot of the spiritual gaslighting a lot of Christians have experienced in America. That may be way too political in a statement, but my whole point here is just that I think a lot of people I know, and myself included, have been taught to distrust their own moral intuitions. But Jesus is saying like, but they're good. I made them. They're a sign. They can lead you to God. And I know that's tricky business, especially for Protestants, but I think we can do it. I think we're up to it. I'm thinking about my kids. I've got two children. I've got two daughters, three-year-old and one-year-old daughter. And if they were really troubled by something traumatic in their life and it bothered them to call me father, I wouldn't hesitate for a moment. I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me. I wouldn't be offended. I freaking love them. I want them to flourish. I'm okay. I'm not offended. Now, it's metaphysically impossible that I'm better than God, right? So how much more is God going to be fine with it? So I think just reprogramming, reframing, just calming down a little bit and opening up some non-anxious spiritual curiosity and exploration is actually what orthodoxy allows us to do. So I don't know that that gives all the answers, but... Yeah, no, I think the Trinity allows us to be so much more imaginative because in the Trinity itself, it subverts our idea of a clear metaphor because a God that is both father and son is impossible. And so that clear metaphor can never mm. carry on fully. And Janet Soskis defines this in her book called The Kindness of God. And she talks about relationship of humans mm. to God. And she describes God as a motherly father, one who begets and fathers. So there's this kind of 
in describing what God does with Jesus, there is a natural subversion of our ideas of a clean metaphor anywhere, even when using those specific gender terms, because a father cannot give birth in the way that it says that God does in the in the yeah. script. So that's a exciting. Father, a father can't give birth, but an early church council talks about the womb of the father, yeah. like that Jesus comes um, de utero patri, out of the uterus of the fathers, literally what the council says in Latin. It uses so that. So we do have resources. Yeah, we've got resources in the Christian tradition for thinking, not reactionarily, but really robustly about, like you're saying, the ineffability of God, that God actually transcends even the most basic binaries of our experience, the male-female binary. And this is not a radical new thing. This is a very old idea. You know, I, I have to teach it to my students as, as being an ecumenical Christian institution. But we're just reading straight from like McGrath's theology introductory textbooks, who makes the same point. So yeah, the paying attention to the analogies. All analogies fail, maybe, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's incredibly encouraging for everyone as well as trauma survivors where there's this point where we're kind of forced to think out of the box and then there's this invitation to the Mm -hmm. markets that ends up being, I think, more central. And that's ideally how theology should work, right? It should come from the edges where where Jesus was. On this, just as a advertise on this point. I really like the work of a friend of mine and colleague, Amy Peeler. Her book, Mary and the Gender of God, came out last year. And she's one of our guest lecturers for the Doctor of Ministry program I direct. But she sort of is making this point about, for those who come from more evangelical backgrounds, let's say, the, the ways in which God is not male, you know, from a really robust biblical perspective, like you said, can be really encouraging. That's awesome. Thanks for that resource. I want to want to pivot a little bit and talk about friendship. How can the church encourage friendship as a method for safe attachment and healing? I'm sure there are so many ways we could encourage friendship for safe attachment. I mean, as I think about my experience and the ways I've been able to experience friendship that brought about safe attachment, or corrective experiences of attachment. Um, I'm thinking about times when there wasn't an agenda, times when I was with someone and the goal wasn't to accomplish a task, times like sort of back to where we started, those embodied routines that bring joy, the things that are just like for their own sake and not for something else, the times where I'm just allowed to be where I'm at and not trying to accomplish anything. I think that's a common thread between all the times I've felt like I was experiencing true friendship and really good attachment. Because attachment is about those two things. It's about, it's really simple, actually. Attachment is really just two things. It's I'm, I'm really seen by someone, like really, really seen. And I, their world is different for having seen me. It's mm. attunement and containment. It's those two big things. Like you see me, the real me, and your world is changed because of what you've seen in me. I make a difference in your world. That dynamic 
is like the it's like fertilizer for human development. It's what allows people to go from scarcity mindset to growth mindset. It's what allows people to grow in their metacognitive capacities that a lot of times get stunted, that are at the root of a lot of psychopathology. Mm-hmm. It's what allows people to flourish and become spiritually curious and open. And it's what creates the kind of people and cultures that we all like and are drawn to, want to be a part of. So I'm just thinking of those times, like what are church things that we do? What are church spaces where we're allowed to just be who we actually are and that's allowed to be an input into the way that church happens? And I have a suspicion that maybe it's that second one that gets, there's often a roadblock there. Because I do think, at least when I think about my experience, For me, I always thought of church as like a one-way street. It's from the church to the culture. And whatever it is, it's either changing or defending the culture or it's loving and embracing the culture. But can we make it a two-way street where we're also like letting people come and actually shape without this fear it's going to do something bad or get dirty? And I know that sounds super like... I know that sounds super young and progressive, but I actually think it's like really, I think there's a robust theological point here that's really at the heart of the Christian tradition. I guess I'm thinking about the work of Bonhoeffer and the way that's a retrieval of some more ancient ideas. I'm thinking about some of the work of Rowan Williams in his book on Christology and Ecclesiology. So I don't know, but like practically, that's all heady stuff, but practically just like, are there spaces where I can just unapologetically just be who I am and that make a difference for people and be welcomed. And I've never seen healing or recovery happen without that. And I have seen in churches. I've also seen it lacking in churches, but I have experienced it in church spaces. And there are some of the dearest. And Jesus does that, right? He encounters people and he allows himself to be affected in a very scandalous way that maybe we didn't imagine him to be. Seems like it. So many encounters where people kind of aggressively reach out for Jesus when he's in the, I'm thinking of the woman who grabs his cloak without his consent. And yet he turns and his entire focus is shifted because there's someone who needs his encounter. And I wonder if we don't need to be so afraid of people who are hurting, changing us. And wondering, maybe our attunement should be where it hurts. And maybe what we're changing and forming ourselves to is not this ideal perfection and goal that we're striving to, but the people along the way that Jesus actually really made time for. And what are, what yeah. are your scriptural ideas and imaginations? What are those coming up for you as more of a theologian and biblical scholar than I am? I don't know about that, but... I do know about, yeah, if Christianity is true, if even like the most basic thing about Christianity is true, then what's true is that at the heart of ultimate reality, there's a really good kind of relationship. That's the heart of all reality. And that relationship is so non-anxious, so not threatened, so chill and happy to just 
let others impact the really secure people, the people that we like and want to be like. They're the people who are the least threatened, the people who want others to get in on it and are open and, and flexible and curious. Those people are attractive. They're flourishing. They're pointing to something true. And it can't be the case that people are better than God. If those people are good, how much more would God have to be that way? And that's exactly what the Christian tradition is all about, that God, even if Christianity is true, God lets God's self be really unattractively, unintuitively affected by mm. not just different things, but even different suboptimal things like sickness and disease and even sin and death and hell, if you want to get really radical, like the reformers like to talk, and does this wonderful exchange thing. I just think it's, I agree with you, I think it's really advisable in the Christian life, don't try to be better than God. That's not advisable. Just if, if God wasn't above it, don't you be above it. It's fine. Just go out there and get dirty. It's fine. I think that's a really good point. We need to, and I'm curious, especially for a Protestant tradition of Christianity in America that's supposed to be all about this. How is it that this culturally got lost for us? Because I think there's a lot of people who feel like we lost our way a little bit. I think that's a really interesting question. But yeah, for the passionate good part of it, yeah, I'm thinking of every biblical story is this way. Back to the Old Testament, like God's calling of Abraham. Like this is a God unlike all the other gods. This God's gonna, all the other gods are local and tribal and they're the God of this city or that city, but this is the God that goes with me as I pilgrim into foreign lands and, and a stranger, the God who marks the one who has sinned and is not going to let him be overtaken. The God who establishes kinship in time and in change. And it's just like the whole narrative. The whole point of the narrative is this very disruptive covenanting God. There's a quote from the book where you said that the church is called to be a balm for the insecure attachment and the refuge for the traumatized. Anything less than this should rightly provoke our indignation. I'm just going to let that simmer for a second. And I think it's quite excellent that there, there is righteous indignation that can exist over the people that we're leaving behind. Who are we leaving and what are we pursuing as we are moving past the slow or mm. as a therapist, there is this slow progress and sometimes there are roadblocks where people are just not moving and you have to give up your idea that you're their savior or that you're there to fix them and just encounter them and wait and allow them to be and i wonder if the church has missed that a little bit if there's this expectation that people encounter god and then change immediately and that's the frustration with trauma survivors is that you should have encountered God and that should have changed everything from the inside out and you should be better now and you should be moving along with us. Why are you still stuck? That's some of the kind of blaming narrative that I've experienced in churches, especially in worship spaces where there's a lot of like, come as you are, but also don't bring your baggage. That and where this trauma narrative kind of comes in and says, no, no, it's actually okay to be stuck and jesus is actually stuck with you and won't move on without you yeah that's 
what you're describing there is like so resonant with my experience. If I hadn't have had resources to have that kind of spiritual experience of Jesus and of the Christian faith, I'm not sure if I would still be Christian. Because I think you're right, that other narrative you're talking about of the fast pace, the quick fix, the triumphalism of a lot of Christianity, and the it's almost this kind of like anxiety, this very anxious form of ministry, where it's like, I'm not actually here to help you. I need you to get better because if you don't heal, it's going to expose something incompetent in me as the pastor or the minister or the one proclaiming this good news. Mm-hmm. So there's almost this pressure. It's like this pressure cooker of proving God's goodness and the goodness of the story rather than just actually leaving the questions open-ended and seeing if they turn out good. And so there's all these false questions. Is God good? Yes. You know, did Jesus save me? Yes. Am I healed? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. can we just actually ask the question and let it be a question without being a, rhetorical question you know i think that's really valuable and important and is prophetically uncomfortably modeled by jesus so i love the ministry of the prophets in scripture these are the ones who like really challenge and get weird and ask the questions and force us to reckon with the messy parts that the people on the margins you know live with that's home for them and indignation i think is a powerful tool for indignation is a powerful prophetic tool And as you were reading that quote from the book, it made me think of one of my heroes, Judith Herman, who at the end of, she's got a similar line at the end of her book, Trauma and Recovery, that has like always been a favorite of mine. She says, so this is the last two sentences of Trauma and Recovery, which is like one of the most influential trauma books. Um, Those who stand with the victim will inevitably have to face the perpetrator's unmasked fury. For many of us, there can be no greater honor. Just like the boldness of, and this was in 1992 when she wrote that, or 97 for this edition, but just like the boldness, I I love the boldness, the justice, and the people are feeling permission. I feel like a lot of people, for some reason, are feeling permission to feel that and find that in the Christian tradition, but they feel like they haven't decades ago. It it mirrors so similarly uh, Julian of Norwich and her asking to witness the suffering of Christ. When she asks like for these visions to reveal God and to experience suffering with God as a way of revelation, I think there's a unique opportunity, not just for trauma survivors to encounter Christ in their traumatized form, but for those who can be like Mary Magdalene to come alongside trauma survivors mm-hmm. and to witness the crucified Christ in the form of witnessing to the people's lived experiences around them and waiting for Sunday. Because if we never have that experience of witnessing kind of the depth of the love of God, there's not the joy of the resurrection. Mm. I think that that's a a unique opportunity that the church has in this pursuit of how do we minister to people who've been traumatized. The first element of the trauma-safe church is to do no harm. 
and then to listen to survivors tell their stories and then to take action to empower restoration and to engage and bless the bodies of the members. Those are the four elements that you kind of laid out. And in there, it's not this, how do we care for this very specific group, but like, how are we transformed more into the likeness of Christ by the experience of this particular group? And we are changed by our ministry too, and changed by their ministering to us, mm-hmm. them allowing us to witness them as Christ embodied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the way you just put that. It's the perfect. I wish I could capture that and add it like at the very end of the book. That was a perfect summary. I think of a big change at the heart of it is like opening up this two-way street between this false dichotomy between the healers and the wounded instead of just recognizing the wounded among us are a gift that show us things. Some of us have the privilege of not having of being able to ignore some of us have the privilege of ignorance or of avoiding the pain of our life others of us the pain is so intense that it shows up as psychiatric disorder and we have two options as the church i think you're right to either receive them as a prophetic gift to us to enrich our common life together or to find ways of turning an eye from their experience And either way, Christ is with them. He's very clear about that. If you want to find me, I'm out there with the widow and the orphan. So if you love them, you love me. I'm going to let that sit for just a second. How do you find, especially in the midst of disassociation, how do you find that God relates to those who are dissociated from their bodies? Do you have spiritual practices that you recommend this for people who experience this? It's such a, I love how concrete that question is. Yeah. So dissociation, for those who don't know, dissociation is technical term, a clinical term that refers to a, an alteration of consciousness that people experience. And it's actually not a it's not a totally uncommon experience. And like many pathologies, many psychological disorders of any kind, that's really just an amplified version of something that's a lot more common to everyone. So an example of experiencing dissociation in a non-pathological way, in a normal way that everyone experiences is something like white line syndrome. Like when you're going on a long road trip, and you're just driving down the interstate, and then you wake back up, and you didn't actually fall asleep, but you just zoned out, and you were just in the headspace of the monotonous drum of the highway. And then you like wake back up and realize you were daydreaming or whatever, or daydreaming at work. These are all forms of like low, you could call them low-grade, non-pathological dissociations. And it's actually totally normal, and it totally helps us survive in the world, and it helps us, keeps us from getting bored to death or whatever is going on. But in pathology and stress, like if you're so stressed in a moment by a threat, this becomes like so intense of an experience that your mind just sort of numbs from the experience. And it's how a lot of people like with physical traumas, they end up being able to do amazing, seemingly superhuman things 
our minds have a way of like really adapting to protect us. And there's all sorts of neurological, biological, hormonal things that correlate with that experience, adrenaline and cortisol and all these fight or flight and stress response hormones. But the thing that makes like trauma unique and different is that in trauma, you keep dissociating even after the stress is over. And that's really a lot of times what pathogenically distinguishes trauma from experiences that aren't traumatic, but maybe were just as stressful. So I can remember a memory. I don't know if I write about this in the book, but I remember a memory of like going whitewater rafting with my mom and her friends from church. And on this whitewater rafting trip, we were, went on a bike ride. We brought our bikes and I was riding with my mom's older male friend. And I remember my bike was like, it was a Mickey Mouse seat on the bike as I was biking through the woods. And I hit a bee's nest and fell into the bee's nest. And I was a young child. I was like 12, maybe to this day. I remember the feel of the dirt on my face. I remember the, the look of the bike seat. I remember the details that don't matter, right? I remember them because the stress was activating my hypervigilance in that moment to all these sensory details. That's why they stick in my memory. Yeah. And I remember my mom's friend saying, I just remember him saying, run, Preston. And I just took off and ran away from the bees. And he like sort of got my bike for me and brought it back. I had stings. For a kid, that's a pretty overwhelming experience. It was a massive beehive in the ground. It was like falling into an Indiana Jones trap or something. But you know what? Like I was able just now to tell you that story and it wasn't incoherent for me. I didn't zone out. I didn't develop another personality. There are all sorts of things that are not pathological. I can recall that memory to you and I can enter the stress of it, but it doesn't overwhelm me. And that's because I didn't have to dissociate during that event. And I didn't have to dissociate during that event because I had agency. Run, Preston, run. I had the power to do something, to change the event in some way. Yeah. And the thing that makes trauma unique, that makes people need to dissociate, is that there's no agency. They feel completely unable to change the threat. And the last resort is this alteration. If I can't alter the world, I'll alter me through this dissociation. I'll alter my consciousness. And then that just continues. People stay stuck there. This totally happened to me so many times. I can remember specific times, but also just low-grade forms of life. I used to like not enjoy life, be much more subdued. I remember going into my psychiatrist's office, and he was super cold and not warm and affectionate, which I loved. It's exactly... You know, yeah. my therapist was, but my psychiatrist is like blunt. And <laughs> he just said to me like, yeah, you're like dissociating a little bit right now. And he told me, I'm surprised you're not like, he said, after telling him the history and stuff, he said, I'm surprised you're not, you haven't been homeless at some point in your life. I mean, things that to me were like, oh my God, like I need to start taking some things seriously. But to hear him say, yeah, you're dissociating right now. I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you serious? I didn't say that, of course. I look back down, I'm like, yeah, but it can happen more aggressively for people where they zone out. It's like no one's holy. A lot of times for me, it looked like just staring, like that thousand yard stare and like whoever's with me, I can't even like talk to them. I'm like literally not even responding to their question. Yeah. Okay. That's like a mess. That's a whole mess. How does God, how does God relate with the dissociated and how do you, how do you find spiritual practices? For me, 
I have drawn a lot of meaning from recognizing the ways in which dissociation is really just like a, it's like a de-souling, you know, there's this old, I loved researching this for my PhD, this old definition of the soul that John Calvin quoted Tertullian, an early church father. This is, he's saying, I want to define the soul the same way Tertullian did. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Early church father, refor- reformed guy quoting him, animae anima sensu sit. The soul of the soul is sense, sense perception, like conscious awareness, like what I'm doing right now, talking, engaging, perceiving you, engaging you. That's the soul, basically just conscious experience. I think of dissociation as like this numbing of soul. This like people become de-souled, the person who just becomes subdued, they just get flattened, that flattened affect, flattened speech minimal conscious contact it's like when someone is there and they're talking to you but you're also like where are you well they're right here what what, what do you mean their soul their presence their the thisness of this person so what are i just think god the way god relates in my experience is so much tenderness and compassion and patience just long suffering i've never experienced or seen anyone get out of dissociation by being forced or jerked out of it. It's just not the way it works. It's like a scared, scared, frightened animal. You're not going to scare it into being unscared. You got to be tender and calm and non-coercive and non-anxious and patient. And you've got to make space for people to get back in the driver's seat, be in control again, and to risk that agency, a corrective experience. That's what people need. People need a corrective experience where they can have that agency without it going wrong and they can relearn. I'm not going to always be threatened. I don't always need dissociation. I think a really powerful way for a lot of people is just small nudging experiences of agency and autonomy just in their body at basic physiological levels. So just some basic grounding techniques I think can be powerful spiritual experiences for people. Like one I do all the time and have shared with people a lot is five the five, four, three, two, one. You know, name five things, five things you can see and four things. I always get it wrong. I have to look it up. Five things you can see, four things you can touch, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. Just pause and coming back to embodiment. Like dissociation is flying away from the present moment. Embodiment is about coming back to it. Mindfulness is about coming back to it and learning that you're safe. So what is going to help me find God right here and now in the nitty-gritty details of this moment? I think those have been the ways that our spiritual practices or ways of being that sort of open me up to a sense of calm that's not this hypervigilance of dissociation and not just calm, but also like the full-blooded agency of I'm here and I'm safe and I can fight and I make a difference. Everything that's the opposite of that dissociated feeling. I take my shoes off after therapy and I walk around like this little grassy field and there's something about the grass on my bare feet that really shakes my body out of its regular rhythms. Mm. I incorporated that into a worship service where I read the verse about Moses encountering God and taking his shoes off in, in the burning bush. 
And there seems to be a holiness about making oneself forced to be present in the moment and embodied that says, I'm ready to actually encounter God because I know I'm in this liminal space. And I think you described that in the Eucharist really well, where there's Mm. this really simple experience of take this bread. It is an embodied experience. Take this wine and remember the God who experienced visceral suffering, but also joy and also a good dinner with friends and inviting people into that is something Mm. that's a way of inviting people into embodied experiences. And I think that's something we miss when worship is very, very corporate and also very loud and overstimulating. For me, I've had a really hard time with evangelical spaces where I can't hear myself sing or I can't focus because there's lights and fog and lots of lots of noise telling me what to think even during the like moments of in between songs like someone's talking or praying there's so much noise that I'm like almost invited to be outside of my body and that's worship now is having this like out of body experience and I've like gone to the other side and decided Quakerism is the way and I need to be in silence because I need to just have this like very minimally stimulating experience so that I can hear the small whisper that I have found is God. And I'm running of Elijah too, whenever he's running from all these people that are pursuing him and he's having a traumatic experience running for his life. And God is in the, it, God has these like different elemental ways. So there's the fire and there's the wind and the great earthquake. And then there's the whisper where God actually is. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's what you're describing embodiment it seems like to me is this knowing that people encounter these great signs, but that God giving them space for that whisper after mm-hmm. also encountering like what you were talking about with your therapist earlier and them willing to endure your throwing of your violent tissue. And the, the whisper of peace that followed for you. Yeah, I, I love that. The uh, I like your critique too of uh, worship, the out-of-body experiences versus the in-body experiences. Yeah, I think there's something to that probably. And maybe that's why a lot of people, I know a lot of survivors who are, and not survivors, but it does seem like it's a trend. It seems like a lot of people, a lot of young people become simultaneously become more open to the wounds of their life experience as they are also shifting traditions and a lot of times towards more liturgical traditions. So I'm, I'm interested in that styles of worship and ways we relate to our bodies. And, but yeah, the Eucharist, I think you're right either way, regardless of your tradition, like all Christians historically have been pretty sacramental in one way or another. And just opening yourself up to sacramental experience that God, which I think is, it's the most basic insight sacramental theology, is that God does not hate the things God has made. God likes to be experienced not despite the things God has made, but through the things God has made. Mm. And that idea 
is a lot of times very foreign and eventually liberating to a lot of to a lot of trauma survivors who are seeking for like spiritual significance. I'm going to end with a final question and then sort of an invitation for you to share any last meditations that you have. Where right now do you see the hope that I think you're this book is quite full of the dawn of Sunday, which we haven't actually explicitly me- mentioned yet. But in the dawn of Sunday, you close with this exciting opportunity to witness God as the Trinity as the sun rises. And there's mm-hmm. this sense of trauma is not the end. And that there is there is a dawn on the other side. And that sounds wonderful and idealistic, but that's also, it seems to be a cup of coffee. And it also seems to be a walk with a friend and incredibly practical and experiential. So where are you seeing that that hope carried out around you? Where's that potential budding? And yeah, maybe that's strange. Yeah, and maybe oh, the yeah. is, yeah. I just appreciate it so much. It's an insightful like, question, the way you framed it. I hesitate about that because in this book, before writing this book, I had tried and was really compelled to like drink really deeply from trauma theorists and current trauma theologians. And the trend of a lot of the origins of trauma theory, the trend of a lot of the like how did trauma move off the psychoanalytic couch and become like an interdisciplinary topic that sells lots of books and is now very popular? How did that happen? It happened because of the Holocaust in Vietnam. People began gathering around this experience and saying, a lot of our Western narratives are very triumphalist. They're very conquesty. They're very, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger pull yourself up by your bootstraps, very self-sufficient. But yet we have all these people who have this experience of total powerlessness. Mm-hmm. You know, like the experience of trauma is like a total counter-narrative to the whole Western philosophical tradition. And that means that a lot of people have really focused on trauma as this intractable, fundamental stopping point. And that's why, and that really, I get that. I get that. And that really speaks to me and ministers to me. And this is like the sitting in Holy Saturday part mm-hmm. of just don't try to make it better. Just be with me in the crap of this and just let it be what it is. This is bad and there's no redeeming it. We love, there's something that like, we love that. That's why we love Marilyn McCord Adams and horrendous evils that have no, possessed no good meaning making to the horror participant. Like there's something that resonates with our experience there. There's some things that are so bad that they don't contribute to goodness in life. I think it's really important that we keep that space, that we keep a space where we can just call bad things bad. And yet, (laughs) and yet there's something about being human that we are so fragile and so wounded, but we're also like so resilient. We're so like, we want goodness in life. 
And we have to have narratives. We have to have ways of doing theology. We have to have ways of psychologically describing people that make room for that experience. I think there's this fear, and I've experienced it a lot in myself and with other survivors and the way that this gets manifested in scholarship. There's this fear that if we say anything good, it's going to be triumphalist and it's going to not honor just how sacred these wounds are. But I think the people that I know who are most, the most fully alive after trauma, the people who I admire the most after trauma are people who are not threatened to re-experience goodness again in the world. Mm. And I think that's a little different than triumphalism. I think that is like, there's all these wounds that won't go away. There's tragedy, there's heartache. And also, am I willing to risk being open to goodness again? Mm. Yeah, that, that's the question for a lot of people. I think this is a really salient question for religious trauma and for issues of spirituality. Because there's a lot of people that religion and spirituality is so tense for people. It's so like explosive that they're just so afraid and allergic to any kind of positive or meaning-making stuff with their Christian journey after deconstruction or whatever you want to call it. It's going to mean returning to something bad. And it's like, yeah, but what about that spiritual impulse you have to seek meaning and to find beauty? And you got to have an outlet for that because that's part of being human. And if God's real and this whole thing is real, then that's got to be part of the equation too. So I don't know. And all that's way meta and you asked for like concrete stuff. And this is my like head heart balance in my life and world, but I do experience it. I do experience it. I experience it all the freaking time. I experience it with like my daughter, just like coloring with her in the morning. She wants to color with me every morning. And mm-hmm. I don't always love it. Like sometimes I just want to have my cup of coffee, right? But then I like, oh my God, she's so young and she's going to grow up so fast. She already is growing up so fast. And I love the little, she shows me how to draw a, I think she calls it a silly face or a funny face. She calls it a funny face. It's just like a particular way of drawing a face. And she like literally taught me the other day. And she taught me that the eyebrows go above the face. So the eyebrows would be up here, yeah. like over my head. That's how she draws them. And now I know the correct way to draw a funny face, right? Yeah. But my trauma is not everything about me. It's a really important part. For a long time in my life, it was one of the biggest parts. But just because it's becoming part of a bigger whole doesn't mean it's any less important. It just means I get to frame it in other joys in life. And you don't have to have a competitive relationship between joys and sorrows. You can just be open to the sorrows of life. You can also have a lot of joy in life. And that's totally like a, that's totally a thing that Christians should be able to make space for. Yeah. Jesus has the wounds that he opens up and yet invites the disciples to breakfast. There's that and of Jesus's actual resurrection, where he's showing up to all these traumatized disciples who are terrified and don't recognize him, half of them. And then there's this radical sort of beach party that Jesus says like, hey, come in from fishing, join me for breakfast that I've started. And I can't think of a better invitation for people than just a simple invitation to share a meal and to look at wounds as not a thing 
that are the end, but this invitation to further relationship and to further encounter. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience. I so appreciate your insight and the incredible amount of work that has gone into this book and just your years of wisdom. Thank you so much.